This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. A new National Security Memorandum, or NSM, aims to enhance the cybersecurity of the federal government by requiring the same cyber measures that a previous White House memo outlined. The NSM will focus on national security, the DOD, and the intelligence communities. The memorandum builds on the administration's previous work to protect critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. The U.S. Postal Service is now offering four at-home COVID test kits to Americans for free. The website to order the kits, covidtest.gov, has launched. Those kits will begin shipping in late January to households that request them. The kits are part of a White House initiative to increase COVID-19 testing following the spread of the Omicron variant. Federal News Network reports that Deputy Federal CIO Maria Rote is retiring and planning to leave government service on March 31st. Rote has served in her current role since May of 2020. Since then, she has worked on projects like the Technology Modernization Fund and the Federal Data Strategy. Prior to joining OMB, Rote worked at the Small Business Administration as the agency's CIO. Part of the federal government's approach to cybersecurity is developing unified security standards across all agencies. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, develops those security standards and guidelines for agencies, contractors, and critical infrastructure. Ron Ross is a fellow at NIST, and he leads that effort. Ron, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Mimi. It's great to be with you today. What is NIST's specific role in cybersecurity that is unique in the federal government? Well, NIST is unique in the sense that uh, we have responsibility for developing cybersecurity standards and guidelines for the entire federal government and all of the government contractors. And we've been doing this for literally decades and, and our place is very special. We collaborate uh, very heavily with other federal agencies, but ultimately the responsibility under uh, law is uh, with NIST. So are your standards just for civilian agencies or are they also implemented at DOD and the intelligence community? Well, it depends. Some of our standards and guidelines are actually, they've been adopted by the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. Uh, we don't have statutory authority over those parts of the federal government. Uh, ours is the civil agencies, but we have uh, many of our, our guidelines, for example, the risk management framework and our security control guideline, NIST 853, uh, those have been adopted voluntarily by the Defense Department and the intelligence community as part of the joint task force, which we started uh, back in 2009. You've been uh, part of the, uh, you've been in the information security business a long time, Ron. And I wonder what was the state of the federal government's cybersecurity when you first started looking at the issue? Well, that goes back a long time. And I, I think we've made a tremendous amount of progress over the three decades that I've been doing cybersecurity. I think uh, we, we've had a, a natural progression. We started out, uh, we didn't have very much protection for our systems at all. Uh, we started uh, very simply with some very simple uh, technologies and, and controls. And over the past couple of decades, we've built up on those original standards and guidelines till today we have a, a fairly robust uh, set of standards and guidelines which are now implemented across the federal agencies. And, and actually a lot of the private sector uh, organizations uh, 
adopt our standards and guidelines on a voluntary basis as well. So we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. I was going to ask you that, you know, that now are you confident that agencies and critical infrastructure are adequately protected? Is it robust enough? I think in cybersecurity, you, you never really sleep well at night, no matter how far you've come. And I think we've made a lot of progress, but I, I characterize our, our issues in cybersecurity as kind of above the waterline and below the waterline. Uh, agencies are implementing our frameworks, and our controls, but there's a lot happening below the waterline. That would be the systems, the software, the hardware, and all those components that come together. And that's where the adversary really likes to attack us because our systems are very complex. And in that complexity, that represents a lot of attack surface for adversaries. They have a lot of choices, a lot of places to go. So our, our emphasis now is going to more to the engineering side of the house. Our two publications on uh, 80160 series are looking at how do we develop more trustworthy and assured system components that can go into those systems. So we can, we can actually build systems that are more penetration resistant and limit the damage the adversaries can do once they do get in, because eventually they do get in. We want to be able to limit their damage and make our systems more resilient. As cyber criminals become more sophisticated, do your security standards have to keep changing to keep up with that changing threat? Well, actually, the threat will always be changing because our, our technologies are changing. And, and as software is developed and, and hardware and all those components come together, uh, there's always the opportunity for new things the adversary can do to us that we didn't know about before. Uh, you've heard the term zero-day attacks, where they figure out something with some vulnerability in our systems that we don't know about. They launch the attack. So the answer to that is doing better engineering. Getting back to the fundamentals of how we build systems, building better software from the start. And, and this is involved in a lot of projects based on the recent uh, executive order. Uh, improving the quality of software is really job number one. So as, as we push more and more of those weaknesses and deficiencies out of the code, then we have fewer vulnerabilities for customers to deal with on, on the other end. And that makes that system inherently more secure. But again, it's never going to be perfect. So FISMA is the law that requires all federal agencies to develop and implement information security for their systems. What is NIST's role in implementing that law? Well, NIST was charged, uh, this goes back to actually 2003 when the legislation uh, first came, came on the scene. And NIST was given very specific responsibilities in the law to develop standards and guidelines that would allow federal agencies to implement those, uh, that, that law. The law really talks at a very high level of abstraction. And so out of that legislation, we developed several uh, standards and guidelines and many of our customers are very familiar with those now. The NIST Security and Privacy Control Catalog, NIST 853, was one of our original documents that came out of that legislation. Uh, we also had several FIPS, our Federal Information Processing Standards, the Risk Management Framework. So all of those things were, really came out of that high-level legislation over the, over the last uh, couple of decades. But Ron, how do you know that the standards and guidelines that you develop are actually implementable by the agencies? Well, implemented and implementable are two things. We, we have a, a very robust public review process. Whenever we develop a new standard or guideline, it goes out for several reviews with our customers, and that goes to all federal agencies. Uh, it goes to our the contracting base. Anybody uh, can comment on the publication as it's being developed. That's one of the tools we use to make sure that the guidance is technically correct, 
and implementable. Now on the other side of that, how is it enforced? Well, we have the inspectors general, the Office of Management and Budget, and they do audits. There's assessments that go on every year. There are FISMA report cards that go from the federal agencies up to OMB. So we kind of have a nice sense of checks and balances across the federal government to make sure that the, the guidance is implemented uh, effectively and correctly. All right, quick pause here and then we'll be back. Coming next, we continue speaking with Ron Ross about his efforts to secure critical infrastructure in the U.S. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. I'm here with Ron Ross. He's a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Ron, let's talk about critical infrastructure. Uh, how are you working to secure critical infrastructure like the electrical grid, traffic signals, water? What have been the biggest challenges there? Well, the biggest challenges in critical infrastructure, it's all about computers. And of course, over the past couple of decades, we've seen a massive convergence of cyber and physical systems. And we have our, our traditional information technology systems in the federal government. Now we have what they call operational technology systems. These are industrial control systems and power plants, manufacturing plants, but they're all uh, under the common denominators. They're all driven by computers and, and software and firmware. So NIST standards and guidelines are very robust. They, they would be applied both to those information technology systems and also industrial control systems. There's some unique challenges in the world of uh, those kind of types of systems, but the standards and guidelines can be applied broadly across the critical infrastructure. Uh, we've also have our, our cybersecurity framework, which was developed about, I think it's been six years or so ago, maybe it was seven years. And that framework uh, was developed for the critical infrastructure. So they have a tool to help them understand uh, how to build their security programs. And this can be applied across all types of critical infrastructure from power plants to water distribution systems. But uh, the, the standards and guidelines themselves are are broadly applicable. They just have to be applied in the basic environment where, where the organization lives and operates. And you mentioned this before, the risk management framework. What is that and how does it impact security? Well, the risk management framework was one of our original publications. It gives organizations uh, a seven-step process to understand what are their critical assets, how much protection they want to provide for those assets, what controls should be in place, and then they, they go through an implementation process, obviously, and then there's an assessment to make sure those controls have been implemented correctly and are operating as intended. And all of that eventually culminates in what we call an authorization process, where the senior leadership within the agency will make a risk-based decision on whether to put that system into operation. Uh, and then after that decision has been made, then we go into something called continuous monitoring. The adversary is always working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Those threats are evolving. And we have to be continuously monitoring those systems to make sure the original security state that we intended is still there day to day. And is that framework fully customizable for the different needs of different agencies? It's totally customizable and flexible. We have over, I believe, over 1,500 controls now in security and privacy, and, and we never expect those controls to all be implemented. Every agency has a different mission, different business operations, different risk tolerance, and that catalog, all of our standards and guidelines are, are built to be inherently flexible. So every organization can build a security program that really talks to their specific needs 
and, and that's really the best way to implement our standards and guidelines. And you mentioned that you had previously led the joint task force. What was that and what were the results of that task force? The joint task force was started back in 2009 and it was a collaboration between NIST and the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. Uh, we came to the DOD and the IC with a proposal back in 2008 uh, saying that why don't we try to collaborate across the entire federal government instead of all of us doing different security controls and having disc, different risk management type frameworks, let's try to standardize on the, the NIST framework so we can all be singing off the same uh, sheet of music, so to speak. And the DOD and the IC were very receptive to that. We worked for over a year to get the NIST uh, documents updated so we could reflect the needs of the DOD and the intelligence community. And around 2009 timeframe, uh, they started to adopt uh, the NIST standards and guidelines for the risk management framework the security controls, the assessment, the continuous monitoring. And that went into their formal policy several years later. And now it's just part of the standard way that the DOD and the intelligence community are operating side by side with NIST as, as partners. And that's what we call the Joint Task Force. And you've said that um, cyber attacks are conducted um, with silent weapons. What do you recommend to agencies and companies to better detect those attacks and to be better protected? The first thing that I think we have to do is simplify the infrastructure. We have way too many devices and things hooked up that are not necessary for mission essential operations. So one of our core principles in cybersecurity is called least functionality, least privilege. You only want to deploy the things that you need, hardware, software, firmware, that you actually need to carry out your mission. And so reducing that complexity, getting rid of the unneeded things is job number one. Uh, the second thing is to understand your critical assets and make sure that you understand how much loss are you willing to take? And that drives those kind of initial discussions on your critical assets will really drive how much protection you're gonna deploy. Cybersecurity is not inexpensive. It, it costs money, resources to protect. And you have to be very careful that you don't do too much, but you also have to be careful you don't uh, uh, underprotect as well. Thanks so much for being on the program with us. Coming next, Russian troops and tanks are moving to the western border with Ukraine. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a former Supreme Allied Commander of Europe on how the U.S. can respond. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Russia continues to move troops and tanks to its western border with Ukraine. Russia could also be moving troops to neighboring Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north. Retired Air Force General Philip Breedlove was one of six geographic combatant commanders and supreme allied commander of NATO. He's currently distinguished chair at the Middle East Institute and professor at Georgia Tech. General, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So it looks like several rounds of diplomacy have failed. What are options are there to deter Russia? Well, <clears throat> you're correct. It looks like that uh, to this point, uh, those talks have failed, but I don't think it's time to give up on them. I, I agree with Secretary Blinken. There is still time to try to work this out. It really boils down to what uh, Mr. Putin uh, wants to accomplish. He's assembled uh, a force for a purpose to try to bend the West to meet his demands, and, and we'll see how uh, it goes from here. 
As far as further deterrence, uh, um, you know, we have we have taken a path of sort of spoken deterrence to this point. We've done uh, fairly little actual movement of capability, uh, et cetera, uh, as far as a more physical deterrent. Uh, and so there are still options. Um, and I'm so what do you I, mean, general, by a physical deterrent? Well, for instance, some, and uh, I'm not proposing them, but some have proposed troop movements. Uh, uh, the president has clearly taken troops to Ukraine off the table, uh, but troop movements to other places in NATO to reinforce uh, our allies, to be ready if there's any spread of the conflict that uh, Russia seeks to engage in, et cetera. So, there are plenty of options out there. And I, I must say that uh, um, some talk about no troops in Ukraine, but we've had troops in Ukraine for a long time. We have a longstanding training detachment at Yavriv training grounds and other places. So um, this is kind of a, a bit of a play on words. Ukrainian intelligence is reporting that Russia has been moving stockpiles of ammunition, field hospitals, and security services to the border. Do you think that means that they're ready to attack and they're not bluffing? Well, clearly they have been doing that also in the past, but what we see now is a little bit more of a logistical push uh, that would bring the enablers that Russia would need to to. Uh, actually invade if they wanted to, uh, or we should, I think, to be correct, say reinvade, as Russia has already invaded Ukraine twice in the past, uh, and so the recent past. And so I think that these movements of logistical capabilities are being reported by more than just the Ukrainian military. You were the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, the SACUR. Did you have any interactions with President Putin? No, no, I, uh, <clears throat> he wouldn't even remember. I shook his hand once and didn't, didn't even say his name. We were at the 70th anniversary of Normandy at Sword Beach during a huge uh, uh, um, celebration of that great event, and I was sitting right behind him. But no, I've had no personal interaction with Mr. Putin. Take us through a scenario, General. What happens if Russia invades Ukraine? Should there be a military response, or should it just be sanctions and diplomacy? Well, uh, I'm not going to be in the business of advising our government. Let's just look back at how things have played out in the past. In 2008, Russia invaded Georgia, and they still occupy yeah. South Ossetia and Abkhazia, they still occupy a huge chunk of Georgia. And the West really did not respond in, uh, in stringent ways. Lots of condemnation, sanctions, and the things that we normally do. But what we see now is that has not changed Mr. Putin's behavior. In 2000, the fall of 2013 and the spring of 14, Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine twice. Russia still occupies Crimea, and Russian forces are still in the Donbass, propping up the proxy forces there um, and giving them sustenance and supply. So what we have seen in the past is that this sort of coercive diplomacy and sanctions have not worked. 
They have not changed Mr. Putin's behavior at all. And I, I think it's pretty much human behavior, isn't it? If you reward bad behavior, what do you expect to get more of? Bad behavior. If you've ever raised a two-year-old, you know how this works. And so what we have done in the past has not worked. And now we need to examine other avenues of how to attack this. So we have all manner of government tools, diplomatic tools, informational tools, military tools, and economic tools. And it seems with Russia, all we are uh, apt to use are economic sanctions. I think we should begin to look at the other tools of state. So what do you think about the role NATO should play in a potential military response? Well, first, though, first of all, we are a part of NATO. So this is a royal we. So when we talk about NATO, it also talks about us. And I do believe that uh, Article 3, uh, everybody, everybody always wants to talk about Article 5 when it comes to NATO, but Article 3 in short-term Georgia boy parlance says defense begins at home. And so I believe that our European uh, allies, friends, and partners need to be looking hard at what's happening in their backyard. And are we going to accept now, as we have in the past, are we going to accept now and into the future that Russia can use its land military force to change internationally recognized borders in the Eurasian landmass? Because that's what we've accepted to this point. All right. Well, General, I appreciate you being with us on the program. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, we're on Twitter at GovMattersTV, and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Be sure to send us your comments about the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.